Hi, my name is Sebastian Laredo. I am a member of the Whitehead Institute and an assistant professor of biology at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. I'd like to give you an overview of this remarkable phylum of organisms called the apicomplexin parasites through the lens of one of them, Toxoplasma gondii. But before I do that, I thought it would be good to situate ourselves within the tree of life and remind ourselves through this diagram that was recently put together by Jill Banfield and colleagues that the vast majority of life on Earth is microbial. This is so many of the species that are on this planet are either bacterial or archaeal, and even within our own domain, the eukaryotes, whose genetic information is encapsulated within membranes, even there, multicellular organisms are but a few of the species that belong to that phylum, and the vast majority of its diversity is in microbial life. And this is important because we often overlook these organisms and really only become aware of their existence because they make something good, like beer or cheese, or because they make something bad, like disease. In the case of apicomplexin parasites, what they do is they create a lot of mortality and morbidity worldwide. This is exemplified in the extreme by nearly 200 million infections from malaria each year throughout the tropical areas of the world. And this leads to nearly half a million deaths, mostly in young children. At the same time, another apicomplexin parasite causes cryptosporidiosis, which is the causative agent of nearly a quarter of infant diarrheas. And these diarrheal diseases account for nearly 10% of infant mortality globally. So it's another way in which these parasites are causing tremendous morbidity. The last exemplar is a bit of an outlier in this sense, because most people who are infected with Toxoplasma gondii and get the disease Toxoplasmosis, even though it's nearly a quarter of the world's population by seroprevalence, very few of them actually become symptomatic or even notice the disease. It threatens really only the immune-compromised or pregnant individuals who can carry the infection congenitally to the developing fetus, where it can uh, be lethal. So these three very different diseases are all caused by representatives of the phylum Apicomplexa. And here, I'm highlighting them in blue within the eukaryotic radiation so that we can appreciate that they are a very distinct branch of this radiation, very different from the canonical models of molecular biology, such as fungi and metazoans, and even plants. And because of this difference, many of the lessons that we have learned from studying the molecular biology of these model organisms can't be easily translated to apicomplexin parasites and their molecular biology, and in fact, the principles through which they're able to infect human cells, to replicate within them, and to cause disease, those molecular principles are difficult to ascertain, except through the study of their organisms themselves.
If we take a closer look at this AP complex in radiation, the representative organisms that I've highlighted are shown here, and they really span the entire phylum. Throughout the evolution of this phylum, these parasites have adapted to virtually every branch of the animal radiation, and they have co-evolved for about 500 million years along with animals. Their definitive hosts, which are the ones where the sexual cycle of these organisms can take place, um, is highlighted for some of these representative organisms in red, and it shows you that oftentimes the cycle can go in that definitive host, round and round. And in some other cases, you need an intermediate host, such as humans for malaria, or most warm-blooded animals for toxoplasma, in order to carry that infection from the definitive host back to another definitive host. Throughout this evolution, there have also been sophisticated adaptations to different strategies of coexisting with the cells that they parasitize. Because all of these organisms depend on their ability to interact with the cells of the host in order to be able to get the nutrients they need to replicate. In other words, they are obligate intracellular pathogens, and they need to get into the cells that they infect within the host to replicate. And I'm showing you this progression because I think it illustrates how sophisticated these methods of associating with host cells have become from the really a cellular vampirism that is found between unicellular uh, close relatives to the AP complexa, where they attach to other unicellular organisms and suck out their cytoplasm through a process called mesocytosis, to really sophisticated feeding organelles that are used to draw nutrients out of the endothelial cells of the gut, and the complete encapsulation of the infectious agent within the cells of either a, our blood, in the case of malaria and its relatives, or virtually any nucleated cell in our body, as is the case with Toxoplasma gondii. I'd like to illustrate that of the handful of organisms in this phylum that we can culture, Toxoplasma has certain attributes that make it particularly well-suited for studying it in the lab. In particular, I'd like to note that it has a method of repairing its genome called non-homologous end-joining, which the other cultured organisms lack. And this allows us to perform some sophisticated uh, methods of genome engineering, which I'll highlight in the second part of this talk series. We can also culture it continuously in the lab, and we can perform different types of assays with those living organisms, um, and we can label their amino acids or induce their motility. All aspects that allow us to investigate key elements of the life cycle of these organisms within this representative apicomplexin parasite, Toxoplasma gondii. Toxoplasma was discovered more than 100 years ago, nearly simultaneously in two continents, by 
Charles Nicolet, who was working in Tunisia, who found it within these African rodents called the Gundis. And by Alphonse Splendoret, who was working in Brazil and found it killing rabbits. In both cases, because they found it within nucleated cells, they categorized it initially as a Leishmania species. But later, through careful microscopic evaluation, realized that the shape of these organisms was unlike that of Leishmania, and it was, in fact, bow-shaped, which gave rise to the genus name Toxoplasma. It actually means bow-shaped. And Nicolet eventually called his species of Toxoplasma Toxoplasma gondii because it had been found within a gondi. This led to a flurry of papers where these organisms, or what people thought were related organisms, were found in virtually every warm-blooded species that people were looking at. And it was later realized that these were all one and the same species. In other words, they were indistinguishable by serology, and in fact, now we know, virtually indistinguishable by their genetic makeup. So this is remarkable for one of these parasitic organisms because it means that the same species has the ability to infect virtually every warm-blooded animal that experimentally has been uh, infected. Within us, one of those warm-blooded animals, the symptoms usually are swollen lymph nodes and mild inflammation. But in immune-compromised individuals, it can lead to inflammation of the heart, brain, and eyes, and really severe tissue damage. This tissue damage can lead to problems within the developing embryo. And as I mentioned, immune-compromised individuals are unable to control that infection and can succumb to it if untreated. Healthy individuals, especially in areas where there's high incidence of toxoplasma, such as in Latin America, can get ocular lesions. And the etiology of these is still unclear and an area that really needs to be studied in more detail. But these ocular lesions, because we're only able to treat the acute form of the infection, lead to sequelae that can recrudesce and oftentimes end up in loss of eyesight within the infected eye. I mentioned that toxoplasma can infect nearly every warm-blooded animal. And this leads to different cycles of propagation of the infection throughout the environment. So cats can shed infectious stages that I'll get to, that we can consume orally, accidentally, because contaminated foods are common, and those can lead to infection within carnivores like ourselves. But there's a second way in which carnivores can get infected with toxoplasma, and that's by consuming the flesh of infected animals. Because once toxoplasma finds itself within these intermediate hosts, it can develop into latent stages that persist for the life of the host. So an individual that can be seen to be seropositive because they have antibodies against toxoplasma most likely has, somewhere within their bodies, 
typically in vascularized tissues like the heart, muscle, and the brain, they will have a reservoir of infection. And if they become immune compromised, that reservoir can reactivate. Of course, because we're rarely consumed by other carnivores, we ourselves are dead-end hosts for this infection. I've noted that felines are on the top of this life cycle of toxoplasma because they play a very important role as the definitive hosts of the infection. And what that means is that when cats consume the tissue cysts that are found within latently infected animals, say, because they hunted a cat, they hunted a mouse that was infected with toxoplasma, they can then have an intestinal infection where toxoplasma can differentiate into all other uh, stages within their sexual cycle. And at the conclusion of that sexual cycle are these very environmentally resistant oocysts with, which are shed within the feces of the cat. And they're probably the reason many of you have heard about pregnant women not changing the kitty litter. That's because they can, these oocysts are extremely, extremely infectious to us and to other animals. And they're carried within the cat's feces. To go into a little bit more detail, within the intestine of the, of the cat or any other feline, these tissue cysts can rupture and give rise to invasive forms that enter the cells of, of the intestine, replicate within them. They can replicate asexually, leading to more and more of these infectious forms, or they can differentiate into these asexual forms that form male and female gametocytes. The male gametocytes are the only stage of toxoplasma that has flagella and can move with these flagella. And then the zygotic product uh, of, that, uh, of that mating can lead to these oocysts, which then sporulate, essentially go through meiosis within the feces of the cat and become highly, highly infectious. Just to highlight, within a humid environment, these oocysts can persist viably for months. For the rest of my talk, I'm going to focus on the asexual cycle of toxoplasma because it's the source of most of the tissue damage that's associated with the infection. This asexual cycle starts with the invasion process, which is a process that's common to all apicomplexans in which they use to enter and create their own niche within the cells that they infect. Once inside those cells, and within what we call the parasitophorous vacuole, these parasites can replicate several times, creating more uh, versions of themselves, until eventually they egress from those cells, rupturing and destroying the cell as they, as they move out and try to find new cells to invade and fulfill the cycle again. This entire cycle within the lab can be completed within human fibroblasts in 40 to 48 hours with one cell division, one parasite going to two, every six to 10 hours. To understand how 
apicomplexin parasites are able to invade host cells, it's important to understand their cell biology. And so, let's take a look. Inside an apicomplexin cell, especially the ones that are motile and looking for an another host cell to invade, we'll find many of the same organelles that you'd find in any of our own cells. You'll find a nucleus, an endoplasmic reticulum, a Golgi apparatus, and a mitochondrion, a single mitochondrion in the case of toxoplasma. But you'll also find some peculiar organelles that are more specific to this phylum or to its close relatives in the alveolata. Amongst these organelles is the apicoplast, which is an organelle that originated from a secondary endosymbiotic event. Many of us are familiar with the source of mitochondria being an endosymbiosis that occurred between a proteobacterium over here and some sort of eukaryote at the base of the radiation. And that gave rise to the mitochondrion. And similarly, plastids within plants and green algae in green and red algae originated from the engulfment of a cyanobacterium. Those are primary endosymbiotic events. But what gave rise to the ancestors of apicomplexans was a secondary endosymbiosis where a eukaryote engulfed another eukaryote. In this case, a red algal cell. And that red algal cell gave rise to this organelle called the apicoplast. And the closest free-living ancestor of apicomplexans still carries this apicoplast in its photosynthetic state, as shown here by that pigment within uh, this relative chromerovalia. And if we look by electron tomography, here in a beautiful study by the Frischneck lab, we can see four membranes, which are the remnants of all of those endosymbiotic events that gave rise to the plastid itself. Another feature of apicomplexans is this very complex set of membranes right underneath the plasma membrane. It's called the inner membrane complex. And it's essentially a set of flattened vesicles that are stitched together and subtend the entire plasma membrane. And right underneath the intermembrane complex is a set of microtubules that essentially form a corset of a, that structures the cell from the apical to the posterior end. And what I'm showing here in this video is actually the intermembrane complex marked with a particular fluorescent protein that shows you how these parasites form daughter cells within the mother cell, essentially forming all of the structures except for the plasma membrane, which invaginates and gives rise to those daughter cells at the very end of replication. This process is called endodiogeny. It's the process of building two daughter cells within the mother cell prior to duplication. And it's just one of the ways in which apicomplexin parasites can replicate themselves. To illustrate some of the other ways in which they can replicate, and in which Toxo, in fact, can replicate within the gut of the cat, um, I 
have this illustration here. I already went through endodiogeny, that formation of two daughter cells within the mother cell. But in fact, other organisms like plasmodium, the causative agents of malaria, can form multiple cells from a single division in a process called schizogony. And other apicomplexans yet, like sarcocystis, can duplicate their genome several times before dividing their nucleus in a process called endopolygyny. So you can appreciate the tremendous variety of uh, cell cycles that are possible within the apicomplexan phylum. Another feature of this intermembrane complex is that in conjunction with secretory vesicles called the micronemes, which are secreted at the apical end of the parasite through the conoid, which is a rigid structure that allows the cell to penetrate hard tissues, a, these micronemes can release adhesins, which get translocated to the posterior of the cell by actomyosin motors that are anchored within the inner membrane complex. The motors, the anchored motors, are shown here in blue, and the adhesins are shown secreted at the apical end, engaging that motor through actin and translocated to the posterior. And it's that treadmilling of adhesins that propels the parasites forward in a process called gliding motility. Again, this is a really unique adaptation that allows parasites to invade host cells and to move through tissues. And you can see it here in this a experimental injection of parasites into a mouse ear, where by two-photon microscopy, you can see the, the movement of parasites within these tissues and the characteristic shape of toxoplasma, along with this treadmilling, gives rise to corkscrew motion through the tissues. A final feature that I'd like to highlight is the combination of organelles that give rise to the process of invasion. I mentioned that adhesins are secreted through the apical end, but then how do they stick to the host cell to effectuate the process of invasion? In fact, a second class of organelles called the rope trees, which are these club-shaped organelles, are secreted only at the moment of host cell recognition and placed within the membrane of the host cell, the receptor for some of those adhesins. The structure of these has been solved in the case of the micronin protein AMA1 and the ropetory protein RON2. They form a very tight complex that allows parasites to form the tight junction through which they can propel themselves into the host cell being infected. We can see the process of RON2 deposition by tagging it with a fluorescent a protein. And you can see that during the process of invasion in this beautiful video by Isabel Tardieu, you see the formation of a ring that follows the surface of the parasite all the way until it's inside the host cell. Rope trees, in addition to their important role during invasion, have a second role, which is in the secretion of effectors, along with a second set of organelles, the dense granules. 
these effectors can have many different effects, and they are a very active area of toxoplasma research. They are secreted directly or indirectly into host cells. Some of them require specialized export machinery. They are involved in host manipulation, such as mitochondrial recruitment or transcriptional regulation. And they are necessary to evade innate and adaptive immune responses. Differences in these effectors can lead to dramatic differences in the virulence of different toxic strains. And some think that they might be responsible for the highly virulent strains that are found in Latin America. An important part of deploying all of these organelles, allowing the parasites to move and eventually invade, is signaling. And in the case of motility, one of the primary messages within the parasite that tells the parasites to get going is calcium. Calcium is used by our own cells, for instance, in neurons secreting neurotransmitters, or even in our muscles contracting. But the ways in which toxoplasma untangles those calcium signals and changes its cellular behaviors are very different from our own. But I'd like to give you a few examples of how calcium is working. During invasion, we can observe calcium by having parasites that are expressing a green fluorescent sensor that becomes brighter when the cytosol is experiencing more calcium. And you'll see the cell oscillate in its calcium concentrations prior to a peak of calcium right before they invade, and then a dramatic decrease in the total cytosolic calcium concentrations once the cell has invaded. So you can imagine how these modulations of calcium are allowing the cells to respond to the interaction with host cells or to produce the secretion of adhesins that's necessary to propel motility. On the other side of the life cycle, we can artificially stimulate motility with different agonists. Shown here are intracellular parasites. They're green because of this calcium reporter, and they're also secreting a red fluorescent protein that fills up that parasitophorous vacuole so that we can monitor the permeabilization of that vacuole in relation to the initiation of motility. And when we stimulate parasites, what you can see is a dramatic increase in intracellular calcium prior to the permeabilization of the parasitophorous vacuole and that initiation of motility. And so we know that calcium is a necessary signal for motility, both at its onset, when the parasites are egressing, and during the invasion process. Unlike in our own cells, where calcium signals are transduced by calcium calmodulin-dependent protein kinases, Apicomplexins, like plants and other protists, have a completely different class of enzymes that are transducing those signals. And those are the calcium-dependent protein kinases. These are different because they intrinsically have the ability to sense calcium. And that's unlike our own kinases, which require 
calcium sensing components external to them to activate them. And so this leads to structures that are exquisitely responsive to calcium signals. Shown here is one of these kinases, in fact, the one that regulates that secretion of adhesins. And you see it here in the absence of calcium, where the active site of the kinase is occluded by this regulatory domain in orange. And that domain can be changed dramatically by binding to calcium and restructure itself on the other side of the kinase, inducing activation of, of the kinase, which then allows it to change other proteins which are participating in this process of motility and invasion. And this is just one example in which apicomplexin parasites do it differently. And that's why it's so important to study their activities locally and to understand their cell biology within the context of a model apicomplexin organism. And in my second talk, I'll discuss the methods that we're taking within our own lab to address this question and get genetic tools to really investigate apicomplexin parasitism. Thank you.